Okay, thanks, Brother Tim. How are we all, brothers and sisters, this evening? That's good, good to hear. Are you ready to answer some questions this evening? We're going to embark on a little discussion on that very touchy subject called forgiveness. And tonight we want to talk about our attitude towards personal offences. Okay, not dealing with ecclesial transgression where you might have many, many meetings uh, with a brother or sister and there's a need for acknowledgement of sin and transgression and wrong before there's a reconciliation with the ecclesia. This is just our personal view, standing in your shoes, looking out at somebody that's offended you, hurt you, left you feeling bitter in some way. We've all been hurt and offended by people in our past, haven't we? All of us. What about the mothers in the audience, the young mothers who have had their parenting skills criticised by, by another parent or something? That hurts, doesn't it? Or a colleague at work who may have sabotaged your, your project that you've been working on. Or as we even said this morning, and this talk will overlap a little bit this morning, so you should know some of the answers too. That's, that's helpful. What about if a brother said to you that you're not real, you're not authentic, that you're insincere? Now that hurts when somebody calls you a liar. And everything inside of you wants to justify yourself. See, those, those feelings of, of hurt can leave lingering feelings of bitterness and anger, which even could lead to thoughts of vengeance, that you want to get somebody back. And tonight we want to talk about, in a perfect world, okay, in a perfect world, I offend you, I come up to you and say, I'm so sorry, I just can't believe I did that, please forgive me. And you would be much more obliged to want to uh, openly forgive me and let me go. Now that happens in a perfect world. Do we live in a perfect world? We don't, do we? We do not live in a perfect world. How often, brothers and sisters, does it occur where somebody who offends you says that they don't even need your forgiveness? They don't even acknowledge that they did anything wrong towards you. And don't you dare con condescend to, to forgive me. How do we go then? What's our attitude towards those type of people? What is it? Are we willing to let them go? And for the purposes of tonight's discussion, our definition of forgiveness is to let go. Now, where, where did that come from? We talked about that this morning. Because I didn't just make it up. It suits the talk, so I just made it up out of thin air. It, that's a good example of it, but the word for forgiveness, let's go to Matthew chapter 6. The word for forgiveness in the New Testament has the idea of letting go. When you look at the Old Testament word, you've got the idea of lifting, which is even it's interesting in itself because when you go to forgive somebody, you don't just let them go. Like, all right, I'll let you go, I'll forgive you. Off you go. The idea is to lift the burden and the shame and the guilt off them. Now, that's hard, isn't it? But for tonight, we just want to talk about letting go. So if we go to Matthew chapter 6, we'll have a look at that there. Are we ready to let go of those feelings of resentment and those thoughts of revenge in order that we may treat our brothers and sisters correctly? 
and righteously. Now, one reason for forgiveness is this. We'll come to Matthew 6 in just a sec. One reason for forgiveness is this. What does God say about forgiveness? We'll come to it right now, okay? We'll, thank you, Brother Dean. But we'll read it because I don't want to embarrass anyone. So where is it? Help me find it. Matthew chapter 6, at the end of the Lord's Prayer, the only part that needs qualifying is the part that involves us. Verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But, you might want to circle that but, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So there's one incentive. God is telling us, Matt, if you don't forgive other people, I won't forgive you. So cunning Matt thinks I could use a ploy. And I can say to God, I forgave them, God. I let them go. They hurt me a lot. They offended me. And I let them go. Now you've got to forgive me. But that's not how it works with our Heavenly Father. We can't use that as, as a strategic ploy to bind him so that he must forgive us. I can say to God in humility, God, I have forgiven them as best as I can. Now you may, you can, you could forgive me. Now think about those words. I mean, it's chilling when you think about it. And God's telling us that if we do not forgive others, we will not receive his forgiveness. Now, have you ever asked yourself, maybe, where did Christ, if he got them from anywhere, and I, I suppose, and I think he did, where did he get this idea from? That if you don't forgive, I won't forgive. Could we find a place in the Old Testament where those principles are embedded? Because Christ knew them to be true, but it wasn't like that until the time of Christ. Nobody had ever thought of it. Those principles were in the law to be learned. Anybody got any ideas where they could be drawn from? Yeah, that's a good one. I'll give that a mark, Dean, but that's not the one I was thinking of. You know what speakers are like, they want their answer. I know. <laughs> Otherwise, it makes us look really bad. Okay. What's in Leviticus 6? The witch, sorry? I'll give that a tick as well. Remember what we were talking... Now I'm getting embarrassed, see? Remember what we were speaking about this morning? The year of Jubilee principle. Remember that? What's the year of Jubilee about? Let's just go through a little bit of revision. Once every... You got to go... Free. Remember? Back to your clan, back to your family, back to your land. Any debts? Gone. You weren't allowed. In fact, your boss, your master, had to let you go free and give you bountifully on your way out. You were allowed to go free, but think about it. When was the year of Jubilee proclaimed? On what day of the year? 
on the Day of Atonement. So what was happening every year on the Day of Atonement? People were being let go by God. God was forgiving their transgressions, their sins, their iniquities, every single Day of Atonement. And just once, every 50 years, God required of us to do no less. You think about that. He's telling us that if we don't forgive, neither will he. He's been forgiving us every single year for 49 years and then just once on the 50th, he says, now I want you to emulate what I've done and let those people go free. And you know the statistics are out. If you think you've got a, a justifiable reason why you shouldn't let someone go and your knuckles are white on the grudge that you're holding and you don't want to let it go and it's become your identity anyway, the statistics are out. You can go and look on the internet. People that are able to let go and go through things, not stop, but be able to reconcile more readily, have more friends, are happier, live longer and lead healthier lifestyles with less and, uh, less and less illness. God tells us he is a loving Heavenly Father that loves to forgive. He wants to forgive for his own benefit as well. It's only us that have the problem with forgiveness. He wants Israel to approach him. He wants Israel to understand that he's righteous. He wants Israel to come close to him as a father and as children. But do you know what my problem is with forgiveness? Does anybody know what my biggest problem is? Yeah, exactly. I've got a decent memory. I have. And so you come to me and you say, Oh, Brother Matt, I'm so sorry. I did that same thing against you again for the 40th time. And I'm really sorry. And I go, I'm trying to put my really angry face on. All right. Okay. I forgive you then. Not because I want to and not because I even care about you. But God's told me that if I don't forgive you, he won't forgive me. And that's what I'm like. And I remember every other sin that you've done. But we know that's not how God is, is it? What's God say about our sins that we commit against him? Did you say Micah? I blotted out. Thank you for that. That's excellent. God forgets Micah chapter 7 says that he casts our sins into the sea. In Isaiah chapter 43 and Jeremiah 31, it says he forgets our sins, so he doesn't even remember them anymore. And straight away us humans go, yeah, but you can never forget the feeling. All this talk is about direction and not attainment. Perfection is forgiveness, and we need some direction towards that type of perfection and we want to forgive wholeheartedly. We want to release our brothers and sisters. We want to let them go. We want to forget. We want to get over the resentment, the bitterness, the hatred, the anger, the thoughts of revenge. We just want to get over it. It's hard for us. But we don't want to make any excuses for ourselves. Yes, but God says that he casts our sins behind his back and as far as the east is from the west... It's absolutely amazing when we think about God's forgiveness for us. 
And you know what the problem is? We get into that cycle with God, don't we? And we have our own idiosyncratic sins. The same sin that we fall into time and time again. Like, what's yours? Would you tell me what it was? Is it envy? Is it pride? Is it that you cheat a little bit every tax time when it comes around? Gossip, perhaps. Bitterness. What is it? Malice. Are you a nasty person underneath? Does that nastiness just keep bubbling forth in the ecclesia? That cutting remark. Whatever it is, that sin that just keeps reoccurring in our own life, we come back to God on our knees sometimes and we, we say to him, I'm so sorry, Father. I, I don't want to ever do that again. We go out and we do it again. And we come back to the Father again and we say, but it happened this time, it's not ever going to happen again. And we go out and we do it again. We all have those sins. Sometimes they even break us to the point we may have tears. Maybe we're too hard, we don't have tears, but sometimes you may do. You come to the Father for the 300th time and you say, Father, I did that same sin again. Now, brothers and sisters, I want you to hear this and I want you to believe it. Do you know what God says to us when we come to him for the 300th time and we say, I did that same sin again. He says to us, what sin? What are you talking about? You haven't committed any sin against me. Every time we come to him and we fall on our knees and we don't even remember the sins that we've committed, but we say to him, look, I'm so sorry for falling. I'm trying the best I can. The father says, don't worry about it. Not only have I erased all your sins and I don't remember any that you've done previous. In fact, what I've done with your account is I've credited it. As far as I'm concerned, you've acted right, only right, always right. You've only ever done right for me. I don't remember once that you've ever sinned against me. Does that blow your mind? And yet that's the same forgiveness, that freedom in letting us go that God wants us to show to our brothers and sisters. Is that hard? I didn't say it was going to be easy. I'm listening to myself say these words too. I've got people in mind who I know. They're very difficult to forgive. People who you've had differences with in the meeting. People where you walk down the aisle on a Sunday morning. When they see you coming, they turn their back. They don't want to shake your hand. And you're forced to walk past them. You may have done that to another person. You see them across the other side of the hall, they turn away. They don't want any eye contact with you. How do we forgive those sorts of people? It's almost like sometimes we're so excited that they won't say sorry and they won't repent so that we can nurse the grudge and we don't have to let them go. We feel justified in that. Are you really justified? Knowing what God's done for us. It's, it's worth thinking about, brothers and sisters. Every time our Father forgives us, He's forgiving our first sin. That's the power of his grace and the extent of his mercy. It does make us think a little bit, doesn't it? These are difficult things not only to talk about, but very difficult to apply in our own life. I mean, how many of us have actually withheld forgiveness because the atmospheric pressure wasn't just right? And you talk about it with your, your girlfriend or your, your, your good friend. You say, look, do you even think they were, they were sorry? They didn't sound sorry to me. I mean, the tone of their voice. That's it. I'm not forgiving them. 
Haven't had those conversations before. See, it's difficult to let go, isn't it? As I said, I didn't say it was going to be easy. But one thing's for sure. It's something that we have to strive for in our life as much as we're striving for perfection. Because our Father said, if you don't forgive, and if you don't faithfully try as hard as you can to let go of that, I can't forgive you. Now, where would we go in the New Testament to find this principle worked out in one of Christ's parables of a person that just can't let go? Where would we go for that? Prodigal son, the elder son is a good example. That's not the one I had in mind. Tell you what, you're good with the answers tonight. I just wish you'd get the right one. What's that answer? What's he looking for now? Brian. If I had lollies, you'd be getting the first one. That's excellent. Matthew chapter 18, we all know this, but let's just have a little look at it for ourselves because, honestly, the detail is horrifying when you, when you consider it. Matthew 18, you've got this wicked servant. Look at this. And it's couched in terms of forgiveness. Peter comes up and says, Lord, thinks he's really generous. How often should I, you know, will my brother offend against me, sin against me, and I forgive him? Is seven times enough? And the Lord gives that seven times seven principle, which I forgot to uh, let you know, but I'm sure you, you filled it in mentally, that the Jubilees based on that seven times seven year principle. Every seven years, slaves would let, be let go, released. And every seven times seven years, the whole nation had a collective liberty. Isn't that amazing? And Peter says, look, seven times, is that enough? And the Lord says 70 times seven times. And he's referring back to uh, Daniel chapter nine. But then he says, look, let me put it this way, Peter. The kingdom of heaven... It could be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle with them, one of them was brought to him. He owed him, you've got to take a breath before you say this, 10,000 talents. And he could not pay his master. And his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Now just take a look at that for a second. Does anybody know how much 10,000 talents is? Now I can hardly teach English, okay, and I'm no math teacher. So I've got the, I've got the details written here. I'll let you know. One penny is one denarii. That's one day's wage. Tick that box. You work all day, you get one denarii. Remember the parable of the servants? Would you work for a penny a day? And everybody said yes. One talent is 6,000 days wages. That's 17 years just for one talent. So how much does this fellow owe? It's scary doing math in public, isn't it? <laughs> 170,000 years wages. And this fool says, I'll pay it. I'll pay it. 
It's his own life. God's couched it in monetary terms. So you and I, first of all, we sit up and go, oh, I got, got my attention now. It's money. It's the back pocket. I understand when you couch forgiveness and sin and offence in terms of money. We are 170,000 years wages and we say like the Judaizers, don't worry, God, I got this. I'll make it up. You don't think we do that? We do it all the time with our wives. We sin against them. We, we, we say something nasty. We have an argument. And we, on the scale, we judge it. And we go, oh, on a scale of 1 to 10, that was about a 5 offence. So what we do is we go down to the supermarket where the cheap flowers are and we buy the cheap bouquet of flowers and we come home and we're thinking, 5 offence, this is worth about 7. There you go. Sorry, love. And we get irritated and mad if our seven, which we suppose gazumps the five, they're still mad with us. And they won't forgive us. And they won't talk to us. And now we feel offended. And we miss the point, brothers and sisters, that forgiveness can never, ever, 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 ever be bought. It can't be demanded. It has to be free and given graciously. That's why God says, look, I'll just let you go. I'll let you go free. Of course. All our lives we want to make it up to him, but we can never make it up. When you sin against somebody, of course you want to make it right. Of course you want to make it better. Of course you want to heal the breach. But don't ever think in your mind that you've done 10 extra things and now you've made it up and they should be nice to you. It doesn't work like that. And yet all of us suppose that it does. And this fool doesn't even understand the gravity of sin. He says, don't worry, 170,000 years wages, got it covered. That's pretty frightening when you think about forgiveness in those types of terms. It's got to be free and forgiving. And then he says in this parable, this really gets to me. So he forgives him. And it says, so when the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything, Look at verse 27. This is, this is God here. This is God, a depiction of our Father, our, out of pity for him. Or the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. And you know what release and forgave mean? It let him go. Now look what it says next. But when that same servant went out, does anybody know where that phrase went out comes from? In the AV, I think it's depart. But if you were to go back to Leviticus 25 on the year of Jubilee, the people who are released and let go, it says they go out. They depart. It means they went out. And they go out to their families, out to their land, out into freedom. Here's a person who's just got his year of Jubilee. He's let go and he goes out. But instead of going back to his family and rejoicing and praising God and off to the temple and leaping and jumping in jubilation, he goes out and gets, a, and gets a man. He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred pence and seizing him began to choke him saying, pay all you owe. Now that's a good symbol of forgiveness, isn't it? Got him round the neck, pay me all you owe. That's a beautiful symbol of holding a grudge. We do it all the time. People nurse the grudge like their favourite child and they don't want to let it go. A hundred pence. You and I, when we look at this superficially, we go, oh, a hundred pence is nothing. 
100 pence, if you want to know, and thanks for asking, is a third of a year's wages. Now, I'm not good at maths, as you already know, so I'm just going to stick to round figures. But let's just say a median wage in a richer area, $60,000 a year. That's 20 grand, $20,000 this person owes you. I like it because God, God acknowledged, like if somebody owed you 20 grand, would you just go, I oh, don't worry about it? It's fine. I'm looking for 20 bucks if somebody borrows it off me. $20,000. What are we going to do? So God does acknowledge there's a debt. There is an offence. God says, I understand they have caused you offence. And he hasn't minimised it because we can understand $20,000. A third of a year's wages is huge. But let's just have a little bit of perspective here. This is what this parable does. So his fellow servant fell down, just the same uh, style as what he had previously done, didn't, done, sorry, that's the word I'm looking for. I was teasing New Zealanders before about their vows and it always comes back to bite you. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you, I will pay you. And he refused and he went and he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now look at this next part. This part here, honestly, if you read it carefully and slowly, it sends a chill down your spine. You can hardly read it. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I let you go. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, now that's the chilling part. Our refusal to forgive our brothers and sisters makes our heavenly father angry. It makes him angry. And delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Do you know where God forgives us from? He forgives us from his heart. He lets us go from his heart, from his mercy and from his compassion. He actually, it's in him, he wants to let us go. He doesn't like the whole grudges, it's not even good for him. It's just simply not part of who he is. Why is it part of us? Why do we want to hold on like that? Why, why, why? We should have compassion like this. And we know what happens, don't we? We're so happy. On a Sunday morning, we come to the meeting and we look at the emblems and we listen to the exhorter and we're, we're brought in our minds again in direction to what the Lord's done for us. And we see him hanging there on the cross and we think, you went to that bother? For me to pull me up in my life to show me of all the things that I've done wrong to show me a better direction and now because of you I have forgiveness and we accept all the forgiveness of Christ 
and all his love and grace and care and mercy and we accept all that and we praise God and we thank him and under our breaths we say, but don't expect me to do it for anybody else. On the one hand, we accept Christ with all that love and yet our hands and our knuckles are white in an effort not to show that same appreciation to other brothers and sisters. Because we're justified, of course, they owe us $20,000. Third of a year's wages, 100 pence. And we forget that because of how much God has forgiven us, we ought to forgive that small, tiny amount in comparison to that of that other brother or sister. We fail to see it. Now, where would we go in the New Testament to see this? We've looked at, if you don't forgive, I won't forgive. We saw the Old Testament, year of Jubilee, where we forgive other people on the same day that God forgives us. We looked at Matthew 18, just briefly. We haven't even considered it. We just superficially looked at it. You can see those ideas where that model's been brought out. Where can we see it brought out in real life in the New Testament? I mean, the hint that we got read this evening. Do you say Philemon? Okay. Under pressure now. We'll go to Philemon then. It's terrible. Okay. Now this, if I try and start saying Philemon, I'm going to go backwards and forwards and make a mess of it. So I'm just going to stick with Philemon, okay? It's a bad Australian way of saying it. I, I apologise. This letter to Philemon is Paul's epistle and it makes a case study of this principle that we've been looking at. It's the only private letter besides the third letter to John. And does anybody remember which other epistles were sent at the time that the letter to Philemon went? Colossians and Ephesians. And where did Paul write the letter to Philemon? From where? He's in prison in Rome, shackled to a soldier. He writes the letter to Ephesians, the letter to Colossians, the letter to Philemon, a private letter, and he sends it with the hand, by the hand of Tychicus and Onesimus. Now, we all know who Onesimus is, but let's just... We know what happened. Onesimus was that servant of brother Philemon who lived in Colossae, and Onesimus appears has absconded. And he's run away from his duties. He's a slave. His life was owed to Philemon. He's run away. And we don't know what he's taken with him. But by the tenor of this letter, it's evident that it was a difficult reconciliation. So who knows? Maybe he took off with the family jewels. Who knows what he did? But he's fled from Colossae across to Rome. Ironically, most of the cities are in slavery finds the Apostle Paul chained to a Roman soldier. But the irony is that Paul is the freest man in Rome, being in Christ, and Onesimus is still slave to his own lusts and sins. Why do you think he sought out the Apostle Paul? Wouldn't that just be reminding him of his past? Now that he thinks he's free, why doesn't he run into freedom and never talk to anybody again that was you know, relevant to his history? 
excellent point. He knew Paul's story. And how did he even know Paul? He must have been there on many occasions as the servant, making Paul's room, giving him a table, a desk to sit at, a nice bottle of water, making sure his rolls and parchments are there. When Paul visited, he evidently stayed at Philemon's house. Maybe, Phil- maybe Anesimus was there when Philemon, his master, first heard the truth and got baptised and became a brother, a significant brother in the uh, Colossae Ecclesia. We don't know, but there he is. He's found the Apostle Paul. Now look what happens when we read this. Paul now writes this letter. Now you know who you have to be when you read this letter, don't you? You've got to be Philemon. And you've got to have a lot of resentment in your mind. And you've got to have all these uh, raw memories of this, this servant who has taken off from you, now returning with this letter from the Apostle Paul. And try and think about these words. Verse 4, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus for all of your saints. Now that's important straight away, the way Paul commends him. Because the love that Paul uses there is the agape love. It's the love where this Philemon, his name's based on just a brotherly love, Paul says you've got such a love that Christ had, the same type of life, uh, love rather that A person would lay down their life for their friends and brethren. That's the love that I've heard you've shown to your brothers and sisters in the Ecclesia. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Now, accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Now, isn't that interesting? Remember how we're talking about forgiveness? God commands it, but do you know what? He can't make us forgive. And he doesn't want us to forgive with our arms up behind our backs saying, I forgive them then, like we do to our kids when we're trying to get them to make up with their brothers. That doesn't work. That's not forgiveness. He could command him. But I don't want to go there. I don't want to command you. I prefer to appeal to you. Now, this is heavy duty, this letter. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner, also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Anesimus. Are you kidding that slave Anesimus, you say your child. How many children did Paul have in the truth? Timothy? Was it just Timothy? And Titus? And Anesimus? Just three. He's been elevated to a certain height here, a certain elevation of privilege, which if you, which you are, Philemon, It's a bit hard to take. It's a bit rich, isn't it? My son in the faith, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he's indeed useful to you and to me. Now you are thinking, do you know that's a play on his name? Everybody knows that. Anesimus' name means useful and industrious. And you can imagine how he was sold at the slave markets. Come and get this. Look at this strapping young lad. 
What a useful man he is. And by gee, his name means useful as well. Imagine the type of benefit and, and, uh, and good that it could bring to your house. Come and buy him. And Philemon can hardly get his hands in his pockets quick enough. And he buys Onesimus, who turns out to be useless, not useful. But Paul's saying, but he's useful to both of us now. Are you kidding me? Like, are you kidding me? This is all a bit hard for me to take. Formerly, he was useless to you. You're not wrong there. But I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Like Paul's own heart? I would have been glad to keep him here with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment. Wow. But I wouldn't do anything without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion. There it is again. I don't want to compel you. I can't command you. I mean, I could command you, but I'm not going to, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Now you think about this. Paul's telling Philemon now, that when you receive Anesimus back, it's not as a slave. That's gone. I honestly, it gets me riled. I try and be Philemon. I imagine what I would feel like. And that's difficult to take. He's telling me, I could command you, but I'm going to appeal to you. And you, everyone hates being cornered, don't they? But there's more to come. That's just, there's only half of it, what Paul lays on next. But he says, he's got to be a brother. Now, what does that mean? But on the ground, practically, you're going to go to the meeting on a Sunday and Onesimus is going to be sitting in the hall. Don't not shake his hand as he walks down the aisle. Don't sit on the other side of the ecclesial hall and have Onesimus sitting on the other side or at the back. He's your brother. And he, Paul's saying, I expect you to treat him as a brother. All these thoughts would be going through Philemon's head, all the practicalities, the same practicalities that you and I have to face when we're met with having to forgive a brother or a sister that has had a long-standing offence and breach with us. How's it all going to work? And what about my rights and my place in the meeting and my privileges over yours? And you've got to receive them back as a brother, no longer as a slave that owes you anything. If you consider me your partner, receive him as you would me. It just keeps getting worse. So Philemon looks at Anesimus now, who's probably hiding behind Tychicus anyway, and says, when I look at him, I'm meant to see the Apostle Paul. If he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Are you serious? I'm writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. But I won't remind you, I'll say nothing of how much you owe me, even your own self besides. Let's just, let's just think about that concept. So Paul says, I acknowledge the debt that he has to you. He may have absconded with the family jewels. He owes you something. I acknowledge that. I'll tell you what, Philemon. You put what he owes on my tab, on my account. I'll pay you back. But I won't remind you 
how much you owe me. Now, how could he say he owes, his, owes him his own life besides? How could he say that? Because without Paul, Philemon was a dead man. Paul had brought Philemon to the truth, shown him Christ. He'd received forgiveness because of Paul. And Paul here is taking God's place. Do you think there'd ever be a time when Philemon would meet the Apostle Paul and say, hey, Paul, you know about that debt that you told me to put onto your account that Onesimus owes me? Can we settle that now? Can you pay it back? Do you think there'd ever be a time where Philemon would say that to Paul? Never, ever, ever. Now that leads us to... So many thoughts come to mind now about how much we owe our Heavenly Father, our own life besides. And that person that, uh, that owes you $20,000, that significant debt, that, that offence that God acknowledges, which God then says, just put that on my account. Just put it on my account. I'll pay it. Are we ever going to say to God, now can you pay that back to me? 170,000 years wages. In fact, you know what? Here's a happy way of looking at offence. Every time you sin against me, brothers and sisters, you're helping me pay back my debt to God. Wow. I can only thank you for the offence. I'm happy to let you go free because you've assisted me now with how much I owe to God. I've already told you we can't pay it back. We know that. But it helps us to understand some of these concepts. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. And you know what? I'm filming and I'm thinking to myself, hold on a minute here. And Paul, although he's couched it in diplomatic language, he's telling Philemon, you better let him go. If you don't forgive him, I won't forgive you. He's telling him you've got to do it. It's not that subliminal, is it? And we're thinking to ourselves, wow. I'm Philemon. I think, well, Paul's chained to a Roman soldier in Rome. I can do whatever I want to do. But Paul, he already pre preempts that. And he says, but confident of your obedience, verse 22, at the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I might be graciously given to you. So if that verse in the epistle, for all Philemon knew... Paul could be already traversing the Mediterranean on a ship at this very moment on his way to Colossae. And so the potential and imminent visit of the Apostle Paul was another impetus, another motivation for Philemon to let Onesimus go. Do I need to spell it out, brothers and sisters, that Christ is telling us that I'll be here at any single moment. And if we from our hearts don't let our brothers and sisters go, I'll be there soon. By your prayers, in fact, we'll be bringing Christ closer. Dare any of us hold back that forgiveness? And you know what we think too? Think of this. Imagine if we let a brother or sister go, that God holds responsible because they are unrepentant and they won't say sorry to you. But you've let them go. And because you've let them go, because of your mercy because of your compassion and your grace, is it possible that we could even move our Heavenly Father to let that person go as well? 
so that in our hands we have the life and soul of our brothers and sisters. And God lets us, every time we forgive, to stand in his place. We have the opportunity to offer to our brothers and sisters, every time we um, forgive them, a mini salvation. Now that, that totally amazes me. In fact, it, the thought is just so much and so hard to bear. I don't even want to hear it because I like grudges. I want to hold on. I don't like forgiving. But that's what Paul is telling Philemon. That epistle is really, really heavy. Now, just for a moment as we are about to close, just think in our minds back to the year of Jubilee just one more time and think about this. And the Day of Atonement, say... On the first year, your father, you're 17 years old. Now, I always get myself mixed up with the maths, okay? So don't laugh at me. I mean, yes, you can't laugh at me. It means we like each other. It's okay. So the first year after the last jubilee, your father, out of disobedience, didn't follow the law, didn't go up to the tabernacle, didn't give his, his tenth. And he wasn't tithing for the Levites. And the crops haven't grown. And the family's reduced to poverty. And dad's come along and said, when you're 17 years old, son, we've got to go into another tribe and we're going to be bond servants to another family. And you can't believe it. You're hitting 17 and you knew that you could make it work on your land. But you have to wait another 50 years before the year of Jubilee comes around. And so you're going to be, what, is that 67? So this is the year of Jubilee and it comes around the 67th year of your life. 50 years, this is the year of Jubilee. It's the Day of Atonement. And on this day, when God's commanded you, remember to, to wail, to cry, to be afflicted, to be upset because of all the sins that you've committed, all the sins in your life and in the, in the nation itself, you come to the Day of Atonement, to the tabernacle. It would be pretty hard not to feel that jubilation bubbling up inside you when today's the day you're going to get your land back. You're going back home. You're going to show your aged mother and your aged father that you can make a go of this now. You'll be faithful. You'll do your best. You'll follow God. Your crops will grow. Today's the day. How excited and happy would that man be? See, that man represents for us the person that you're going to forgive. That's how happy and free and liberated another brother or sister feels when we freely let them go. But let's flip the coin then and say you're the wealthy landowner. You're the one with all the money. You're the one with all the bond servants and it's the day of atonement and it's the year of jubilee. Are you particularly that day downcast? Are you really involving yourself in the affliction? Can you really feel it? And you'll begrudgingly have to let them go. You think about that. There's the two attitudes, I think, just starkly contrasted for us. And it's easy to see. I can see myself in both of them. Been forgiven, having, have not wanted on occasions to forgive a brother or sister. Other occasions I've been free and let them go and felt the health, the happiness, the smiles and felt like that person who had the breach with me was even a closer brother now than they ever were. And it doesn't always work. And some of us are justified for saying, well, it doesn't matter anyway if I forgive them, they won't reconcile with me. We haven't got any control over that, have we? 
We have not got any control over whether or not they reconcile. All we have control over is whether or not our attitude is going to be free and forgiving and let our brothers and sisters go. Like God does to us every day of atonement, like he does for us in Christ. And it helps me to reflect on the manner in which I forgive and the feelings of jubilation and freedom that I can instill in another brother or sister just because I lift that heavy burden of shame or guilt off them and freely let them go.